what is happening on Neighbours that they need to turn urine into drinking water? Hello, you're on the Terrace. We are the companion podcast to Night Terrace, the time travel comedy for your ears. I'm Vaya, and I'm a Terrace Knight. That's a fan of Night Terrace, and if you spell it with a K... Of course, of course. Then it works out. I'm a terrorist knight. And I'm also a Ramsey Street Fighter, a fan of Neighbours. Those are the things you need to know about me. Seems appropriate because Kylie Minogue was in the Street Fighter movie. (laughs) We have a discussion about the Night Terrace episode, Full Steam, episode two. That's just been released on BBC Radio 4 Extra. And I am joined by... Ben McKenzie, who co-created the series and wrote this episode. Hello, Ben. How are you going? This was a warm, warm time for my little nerdy heart. Why is that? Well, I got to write, I could put so many things I like in this episode. It's got weird sort of dimensional physics. It's got strange time travel. It's got, it's got steampunk stuff in it. Dimensional physics is one of your, your fun little bits. Well, is just, it? just nerdy stuff, you know, <laughs> just nerdy sci-fi stuff. It's got a robot. It's got death rays. It's got everything. It did make my head explode just a bit, but that's fine. That's what I like about Night Terrace. It's like, it's like doing a cryptic crossword, but just, just by listening. In this episode, Dr. Anastasia Black and her companion, Eddie, and their other housemate, Sue. Uh, look, no, if you're going to call Eddie a companion, they've got to both be. Both be, because I couldn't tell if what Sue was in the hierarchy, if she's she's not there's an equal. No, but there's no hierarchy. Well, if there is a hierarchy, Eddie's at the bottom of it. <laughs> That's for sure. This is amazing. We must be in a, a parallel universe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these first couple of episodes, one of the things we wanted to set up was that dynamic, which is that Sue and Anastasia are really on the same level when it comes to this stuff. They know what they're doing. And Eddie does not. My day job is I write questions, quiz questions for a TV show. And we had some new writers start with us and we did this big training process and trained them up. And then they were all brilliant very quickly into the process. And suddenly you're like, oh, everyone's amazing. And then you're suddenly like, oh, everyone's amazing. Like, am am I okay? Am I good enough? No, (laughs) imposter syndrome. Come on. So that's Eddie because he, you know, he earned his place and now... He's not sure. Well, yeah, but he kind of, he still really doesn't quite know what he's doing. He's sort of, he's, because he's not an idiot, although he certainly does some idiotic things, <laughs> but he's not trained in this stuff. He's very much out of his depth, but he's also very excited by this prospect of seeing all this weird stuff that you would never get to see. The correlation I have to Eddie and the industry I work in is people that studied creative writing and or, pe- or people that studied media and radio and, and acting and people that didn't and oh, yeah. found their way into it. There's often imposter syndrome in that as mm. well. So every everyone's pathway is valid. But Yeah. It's you- interesting contrast with the games industry, like video game industry, because until fairly recently there were no, you couldn't study it formally. And so everybody getting into it was got into it via some weird sort of sideways path, many of them through other kinds of software development or what have you. But these days there's a lot more people who are in it who have come from a sort of arts background, and that includes me. We often feel a bit of that imposter feeling. Yeah, so we can relate yeah. to Eddie who is not professionally trained like Sue and Anastasia yeah. in travelling through space and time and they we find them in the cargo hold of a steam-powered spaceship. Yes, a steamship in space. 
it's fun to listen back to this because I, you know, I wrote it four years ago now, and I don't remember all the gags. And when I hear them, I'm like, oh yeah, I wrote that. It's nice to have written something that still tickles yourself. And I really like that bit at the end of the teaser where, you know, they're going over and looking over the porthole and they're going, ooh, what's this? What's all this stopping mid-sentence and then exclaiming, oh. So. Wow. A steamship in space. I The bit I enjoyed was when Eddie suggests maybe it's a, parallel universe and Sue and Anastasia erupt into laughter. Yeah, yeah. We we wanted we almost made that a running gag in that we thought, well, everything that happens, Eddie should think is a parallel universe, but they always tell him it's not. And we didn't end up really going with that. It does come back in a couple of places, but I just really like this idea that they know so much more than him that his knowledge is all based on, as we find out in this episode and a couple of others, science fiction. So he's very well versed in what he thinks all this space stuff should be like. But the great thing is it pays off. It does in in this this episode. episode. (laughs) It does. Yeah. And it does a couple of times. There's there's another couple of times this season where it does pay off. But often, you know, he's just a bit out of depth. He doesn't know what's going on. It reminds me a bit of the premise of the TV series Castle. Richard Castle is a crime novelist who comes and helps the police solve murders based on what his characters would do in his book plots. And it is good, as you said, to love the work you've created. I enjoy listening back to podcasts I've created and uh, like some people I speak to are like, oh, no, I'm not going to listen to this. I hate the sound of my voice. I'm like, Mm. I love listening to my – like it's good to be proud of what you create and what you've written and watch things back and listen. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it is. It is nice. In Australia, we often downplay ourselves and – yeah, we, you know, it's very uh, anti our culture to, you know, have tickets on yourself, as yeah. we would say, um, to big up your own work. But I, you know, you know, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, Night Terrace is probably the thing I'm most proud of. Mm. I think, I think as a team, we did a great job. I think it's funny. I think it's emotional in the right places. And I think it's fun and entertaining and um, has got some truth in it. So yes. I think, yeah. Valid. <laughs> What the trio have to work out in this episode is what the hell is powering the steamship in space, which is not scientifically possible. Exactly. And it's not so much – I mean, I think it was fun to write a mystery where there wasn't an immediately obvious villainous plot. It's just kind of like, this doesn't make any sense. How can this be Hmm. the case? But then as it goes along, you know, you get this – sense that something is not right and (laughs) i love the use of music in this episode i think in the script i just wrote something like there's a there's a weird noise or a villainous sting of music (laughs) and david ashton just nailed it with that sort of (laughs) i was like yes this is so good it's exactly the kind of thing i wanted I think one of David's superpowers is just creating something out of a very vague description. <laughs> yeah. And look, you know what? He he did an incredible job on this episode because one of the other things I wanted to do was to introduce a non-gendered character. And look, you know, I said this about um, one of the episodes I wrote in the first series is that if I had my time again now, knowing things that I didn't know back then, I'd probably do it slightly differently. And I, I think, you know, it's a bit of a cop-out that I've written a non-gendered character that's a robot. Like, I could have written in just a, you know, a non-binary person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know if I was doing it again now, I would. But I also wanted to create a robot character and not gender them because I'm like, the robots don't need a gender. And yeah, so which I, is more how I read it. Yeah. And I also loved the fact that Dave Lamb and Amanda Buckley are each 
supply the voice. They do, and, and they're blended together. Your operations are outside my jurisdiction. 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 Do you hear one of their voices more than the other? I hear Dave's more, but every now and then a little sizzle of Amanda, like a little flavour of Amanda would seep through. Yeah, and I liked that, but I think I made that needlessly complicated for Dave. But it (laughs) sort of came out of the idea that if I want to write a character who's not gendered, well, they need to have a non-gendered voice. And how do you do that? That's quite difficult because we're so used to assigning gender to people that when you hear a voice, you automatically kind of your brain categorizes it mm-hmm. for most of us. We still don't really have that universal perception of um, voice no. high and low and what's in between. And it, we still haven't really worked out how we perceive that. I prefer non-gendered terms of address. It speaks. Close enough. Thank you. They kind of originally had that very sort of no contractions, slightly stilted and formal robot dialogue. And there's still a bit of that in there, but through the performance, they kind of knocked the edges off that. And I think that was a good thing Mm. in the end. I also like how sassy Aubrey is. Yes. (laughs) Was that a joke? Do you not understand humour? Of course I do. I just didn't think it was funny. And I'm enjoying how all the characters in this environment aren't sure what's happening and keep checking in with our newcomers. Uh, is anything weird going on? Have you heard anything happening unusual in the oh, cargo but they hold? All have an, they all have an ulterior motive, don't yes. they? It was really fun to write. And I think the plot for this one came to me fairly fully formed. It, there was a Originally there was another whole dimension to the plot. It was a bit more complicated than it ended up being. And, and one of the great things about writing in the team is you send things to John and he just straight up says, no, this, take that out. Ah, That's good. too much. Now, while Aubrey takes Anastasia and Sue up to their quarters, Eddie goes to scope out the rest of the ship. Yes. And we also meet the captain. Captain Fitzroy of the SSS Implausible Yes, is return actor Andy McClelland from Series 1. Yeah. Who's just a joy to listen to. We did, I mean, like, who else are you going to cast as a <laughs> captain of a steamship in space? Yeah. I mean, beautiful. Beautiful performance. Story goes, one time, all the chartreuse in the bar turned into shampoo. Of course, it was nearly a year before anyone noticed. Thank you, Andy. And we also have Mingju He as Rosh, the mm. chaplain of the ship. Yeah. One of the inspirations for this episode is friend of the podcast, Avril, who is a, a minister in the United Church. We had this great chat about how in fiction, there are just no good priests. Yes. And there are basically no female priests. Like the only one you think is the Vicar of Dibley. Like that's it. Like you never meet any others. And particularly not in sci-fi and fantasy. Like they're just always the villain or their their incidental character. As soon as she said that, I was like, I'm going to write one. I'm going to write one for you, Avril. And so, so Rosh is my character for that. And is there any kind of denomination here? <laughs> Future denomination. Like we don't even say what church it is. No. I think I think there was a draft where I tried to make up a church that, that she was a, a minister for, but I didn't want to specify it. I mean, there's a great throwaway gag, which is... You're a priest? I'd have thought the collar might have given it away. It's got spikes on it. Yes, exactly. It's the future. It's like three or four hundred years in the future. That's one of the perks of listening to an audio series is your brain just does that cartoon poof. She says, what about the collar? And you picture a a Catholic priest's collar Mm. and then when she described the spikes, it 
poofed into my head and became a spiky color like a cartoon. It was silly and fun. Yeah, it is, it is a unique part of the medium. Well, I say unique, like you can do this in a book as well because mm. until something is described to you, you don't know what it is. But I, yeah, I liked that. But that's a device you don't often get in an, in another medium because a book will just describe things whenever you need to know about them. But mm. this is played for laughs in this format. Yeah, true. And Ming Zhu has a neighbour's connection. Did you know that, Ben? I did not know that. She is married to Nicholas Coughlin and he is Pufferfish Rebecca. Toadfish's brother, uh, what? who lives with Toadie and his wife and kids and works at the waterhole and has a urine-powered generator and he has used it to turn urine into drinkable water. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. When did Neighbours turn into a sci-fi show? I mean, this is like some colonising Mars shit here. <laughs> what is What is happening on Neighbours that they need to turn urine into drinking water? They dabble every now and then. Someone goes off the rails and, yeah, they've just got to have a break from the high drama. Yeah. <laughs> but wow. he, he's good value. Mingju is amazing. Working with her was great. And uh, she's now on Mad as Hell. If you're not familiar with it, Mad as Hell is Sean McAuliffe's, um, who's a famous uh, Australian uh, political comedian and satirist and writer. But he does his own sketch show called Mad as Hell. It's a political sketch show. And, yeah, you know, we had a lot of the cast of that show yeah. on our show just because they're the sort of people that we think would be great. Now, they're trying to work out what the voyages of this ship because they say it's a pleasure cruise. Yeah, they're not really sure what the deal is. And it's meant to be a bit mysterious. And here's where Sue's just trying to poke at Anastasia a bit, like, don't you want to solve this mystery? And mm. aren't we going to figure out what's powering this thing? And She's more interested in the complimentary tea bags. I did enjoy the rustling noises when she was finding the platinum grey tea. I did like the Jackie Woodburn's line delivery of... Don't you want to explain the impossible? Yes, yes, you're right. Can't be anything but trouble. I like when she's reluctant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. This was another part of, and without giving away what happens in the rest of the series, like we were exploring what do the characters want? You know, so we've got Eddie who's trying to figure out what his new position is in this team. Sue, who's like trying to assert herself and do everything cool because she's like, I, I know my business. It's going to get it done. And Anastasia's a bit like... What do I want? Do I want to keep doing this? Maybe she does. Maybe she doesn't. I don't know. She's sort of starting to think about that now. She's only a recently free agent, so she wants to have some agency over that. Yeah. What about this scene with the two of them analysing the equipment in the yeah the engineering uh, um, bits and bobs, culminating in... No, oh, I've always hated steampunk. Computers and high-pressure water vapour do not mix. Ow! I have this weird sort of love-hate relationship with steampunk because I, I, you know, I've always really enjoyed the sort of old school science fiction. Like I love Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and um, all that kind of stuff. And and that's sort of where the steampunk aesthetic kind of draws inspiration from. I mean, it's it's not really what happens in those books. I mean, a bit more Jules Verne because if you look at things like the Nautilus from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or the airship from Master of the World, like it's there's there's some technology in there which is a bit steampunky, but it's not quite what steampunk has become, which is this sort of weird fetishization of nineteenth century Britain, which is like oh, but imagine if like nineteenth century Britain was cool and had more technology, and you're like, yeah, what if we could still cosplay? Like Victorian ladies, but then things were clockwork. And we also got like ray guns and stuff. <laughs> uh, and also, let's not think about any of the horrendous like slavery and racism and things in yep. those times. And you like, look, it usually gets 
looked over. And so I wanted to do sort of a version of steampunk that wasn't about that. Like mm. it was a it was a throwback, but a very definitely just a throwback to the aesthetic, not the culture. This was more about the mechanics of it. Yeah, and it's not like they haven't gone to like a weird alternate universe 19th century. They're on a steamship that's been created in the future that can fly through space. But there's so many things about steampunk that make no sense. And I just wanted to poke <laughs> a little bit of gentle fun. And the idea that yeah, there's this high technology, but also steam just seems like a bad combo, just like a disaster waiting to happen. So yeah, she comments on that. And they work out that it's the powers being redirected to a blank space in the cargo hold. Yeah. And they're also not really sure how it works. Like, cause you can't have a steamship in space, right? Like it's got a normal steam engine. And one of my, <laughs> my favorite joke that recurs during the episode is that a couple of people ask how it works and they just start describing how a steam engine works. They're like, no, we know how a steam engine works. How does it fly through space? Um, which I just really enjoyed writing. Um, yeah, And we find out that there's this mineral that provides the energy source and that each week they put on a display to show people how it works. Yeah, and this was just like, just it was just puncturing the usual expectations. It's like, you know, oh, this is a rare artifact that like powers this thing. We've got to keep it secret. No one can know what it is. It's like, no, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a show about it every week. <laughs> it's just sort of like trying to take a lot of those tropes. This, this episode when I was writing it, it was really deliberately inverting a lot of your expectations. And, I, and just doing it like quickly, like I don't think there's anything deep and super meaningful in any of that, but it, but it is just fun to go. But if you had this thing, why wouldn't you just put it on display? <laughs> and and explaining that, you know, like when Eddie says, but wouldn't somebody want to steal it? And Rosh is like... Starships and colonies gather more energy than they could ever need from renewable sources. The only thing that needs a unique, super powerful and mysterious mineral that defies the laws of physics is a steamship that flies through space. In some ways, I'm imagining a post-scarcity society where you don't have this fight for resources because you've got enough. But mm. at the same time, there are aspects of this future society where it's still, you know, an unequal form of capitalism, where you've still got haves and have-nots, where there are poor people who can't afford drugs that exist that are a miracle, you know, by our standards, but which to the rich have become super commonplace. Mm which is kind of where Rosh's subplot comes from. So then Sue picks the lock, just sometimes a simpler solution works, and they break into the display room and watch this movie at their leisure. Yes, voiced by John Richards. Great work, John. I, I am in full steam and I think I did a terrible, terrible job. <laughs> so really, I, I just for some reason that little bit leapt out at me as being really fun and I demanded to do it and I think I did it way too fast which is many, many, many years ago when I did stand-up. I was notorious for doing a 20-minute set in about 12 minutes. And uh, I think that happened on this one too, so I do apologise. It talks us through the inventor of the ship, who is Amelia Grant. She's invented a whole array of things. And my question, as Mm. someone who doesn't know the answer, is this planting some nuggets of things that we've already encountered in the series like they, yeah. they mention a new way of harvesting crops and traveling in hyperspace and there's it, a few little things there so most of the things that she's invented were just throwaway gags like pastel new pastel colors yeah. which was my and favorite I, I think i can't remember if i wrote that joke or if that was one that john suggested but it, but i'm very happy with the outcome either way i want new pastel colors that's it, something i really want i know i just <laughs> thought that was funny and then there's that line where it's like but there was one thing that always alluded to her it's like an attention span <laughs> you're like yeah she's just done twenty thousand different things yeah. but amelia grant is actually a character that 
popped up in one of my episodes in the last season. And I like doing this, like, you know, little connections between episodes that aren't really important if you don't notice them. Mm-hmm. But um, she's the same person who ends up with the um, marsupial lion at the end of the last hunt episode. The punters are tired of steam-driven dinosaur-shaped automata. We've got to make Project Codename work, and I mean now. We've been over this, Director Grant. This is 80 years later or 60 years later because this ship's been flying through space for 60 years. And I did also enjoy the callback at the top of the episode to Eddie measuring things in terms of... How many football, oh, yeah. football, football fields? fields. That's about, yeah. And I think it's nice to put those little callbacks in because first of all, it's a nice throwaway gag that he's, mm. he's trying to work this out in football <laughs> fields and nobody cares. But also it just, it just shows that we're paying attention. And for people, I hope I, if like, I would love to hear from some listeners if this is the case, but that if you listen to it and you were like, Oh yeah, he does do that. Like that's, that's nice. You know, it's, it's not an important part of the plot. If you miss it, it doesn't matter. If you haven't heard the previous episode, it doesn't matter. But if you have, it's like a nice little nod to remember this. And some things are jokes, but it also, but also this is a turn of phrase that the character uses. So things aren't necessarily just a throwaway joke. This is, well, the characters might talk like that again later. Gives them some consistency. Yeah. Yeah. We have Eddie's heroic moment when the film announces that the special mineral is called Cavorite. Yes. And Eddie's ears prick up because he recalls it from an H.G. Wells story. Yeah. People often talk about writing what you know. And I'm like, don't just write what you know. Like, write what you don't know, but research it. Like, find out, learn things. But I do like to put, I, I think there's a certain benefit to going, well, I like this, so I'm going to put it in because it means that you care about it and you're going to use it in a way that makes sense. And I and I just kind of liked this idea that, you know, 400 years in the future, nobody else remembers this obscure H.G. Wells. It's not even one of his famous ones. You know? <laughs> I mean, well, it's famous, but it's not one of the ones that gets repeatedly remade because it's It's not so... like saying kryptonite. It's no. not a word people hear. Exactly, exactly. You know, and it's only people who are interested in this sort of genre who would recognise it. What does it mean in the H.G. Wells... Context. So it's named after this the guy who discovers it or invents it. I forget it. I can't remember if he creates it or if he finds it, but his, his name is Professor Cavour. And basically it, it has this sort of anti-gravity effect. So he uses it to power a spaceship that goes to the moon. Now what it really is, is it Night Terrace that's powering the ship? Well, I mean, they don't find this out until right at the end, but they go through the whole rigmarole. They finally end up in the cargo hold investigating it. And right at the end, after everything has gone down, Aubrey, the robot, um, who is also reliant on this power source to exist, opens up this secret compartment in the hold. And inside is... An old terrace house. Yeah. Well, it is night terrace, but it's much older. The paint's peeling off it and it's got all these weird things jammed into it. The amazing line of dialogue that bamboozled me was when sue says it's really very simple the other house is our house from our future which happens in the implausible past present past yes well both of those things because it's (laughs) been on the ship for 60 years but they've discovered it before that and who knows what kind of because the only thing aubrey reveals about it is when they found it there were no people in it oh yeah that's terrifying so yeah and and Anastasia's like, let's get out of here. Well, I, don't, I don't want to know what happens in our future. So, yeah, it's it's the Night Terrace house. Can you make the, this timing make sense to me? So, sure. So the steamship exists in the future. In the future, yeah, that's right. And this replica Night Terrace is in, and like Anastasia's, their future. Yes, it's their personal future. But it's 
but but it exists in the past for the ship. So imagine that they travel in the Night Terrace house for another 10 years. Yep. At the end of that time, they leave the house somewhere or they lose it or something happens to it. It crashes somewhere. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't know what the future for the house might be. And that happens in the past somewhere because uh. it travels through time. And then Director Grant finds the house, realizes it's got these weird properties and uses it to create the field that allows the implausible to travel through space and, and that allows Aubrey to work. See, I understand this, but my brain's not comfortable. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is the great thing about time travel is it gives you this, it uncouples, because we're so used to the idea that time is the same for everyone is very pervasive, even though we know that literally in our actual universe, that's not how it works. Like time flows at different speeds depending on your own speed. Like that's the whole thing about the closer you go to the speed of light, the slower time moves for you. Okay. All that kind of stuff. And this is, we know this is a real effect because satellites that travel very, very fast in the atmosphere have to do calculations to keep their clocks in sync with time on Earth. Wow. So that kind of effect is is real, right? We know that that's a real thing, but that kind of effect is, is relatively small. It's like, okay, well, that clock's running a bit fast or a bit slow and you have to adjust it. That's not... But time travel allows you to have, you know, somebody's personal experience of time that is radically different to somebody else's. So, like... What my tomorrow could be your two weeks ago. And you see this in like in Doctor Who, like the, the biggest example in the Revive series is the way that River Song's timeline interacts with the Doctor's timeline. We watch the show and it is in order, in chronological order for the Doctor for the most part. Like you watch one episode one week, that happens before the episode that you watch the next week. Mm-hmm. But when he encounters River Song's other character who can time travel um, and who becomes, you know, his like you know, love interest... Um, and wife at one point, um, she interacts with him in a completely different order. And if you reorder the episodes so that they happen in the order that she experiences oh, them, wow! it's like this episode happens and then this other episode from five years previously happens and then this one from two years after that happens and then this one from three years earlier happens and, um, you know, it, it all happens out of order. But it happens okay. in her order. And this is what's happening with the house. Or, at least, you know, this is this is what seems the most likely explanation is that this is the future of Night Terrace, which somehow ends up in the past of the implausible. Wow. That's a lot to get my, wrap my brain around. Yeah. Rosh's agenda, meanwhile, has been that she has been collecting unused drugs and medication mm. from, well, the oh. ship's not taking passengers anymore. No, it is taking passengers. Oh, it is. Just not as many. Just not many because, you know, it's been doing this for 60 years and the idea of a steamship flying through space was very fancy and amazing and incredible when it started out. But now it's a bit old hat and, and it's a bit slow <laughs> and only old people with lots of money want to go on a cruise, which I feel is maybe how cruises work in the real yeah. world. I've never been on a cruise ship, so I don't know. My but- mum's going on one tomorrow and it's not so much old people with a lot of money, it's just old people... That need a thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And I guess you, you, well, you know, if you're not traveling to another planet, you probably don't need that much money, right? <laughs> like, I'm sure a cruise ship is, is, is not a cheap thing to go on, but it's probably not the most expensive thing you could do either. So, yeah, so that was kind of my idea with that. And this idea that in the future there'd be all these miracle drugs, but that unfortunately, you know, just because there's miracle drugs, it doesn't mean everyone can access them. Oh. And, and this is like so many things in Night Terrace, it's become more relevant because there's this whole thing with our government here in Australia now where they're putting in all these tax reduction schemes. And one of the things they think they're going to save money on that means they'll still have enough money to do everything is that 
a bunch of expensive drugs that are subsidized through our public health system are going to come off patent and become cheap. And you're like, yeah, that's going to happen. But you know what happens is they make new drugs because medical science continues to advance. And if you stop subsidizing that so that, you know, regular people can afford the new and expensive drugs, this has now become very relevant to this episode where you've got these rich people who can afford to take a pill that will grow them a new spleen, but that's expensive. And if nobody's like paying to help people who need those things afford them, then that means only rich people get to have the best medical care and everyone else has to make do with something that's 20, 30 years old. And so this is this is one of those things where I'm like, I didn't write this as political comedy or as political commentary, but it has now become a bit more like that. I you feel. guys Nostradamus it. Well, look, <laughs> maybe. Now, when everything everyone converges in the cargo hold, um, is there a little bit of a frisson with Sue and Eddie? He's like they were having a bit of a tiff at the start and then he was impressed by something when she uh, – that great cut scene where she was going to take down the guards and then it all happens off off screen. <laughs> That's interesting. I've never interpreted it that way. I certainly didn't write it that way. Um, I kind of see him as a bit – he's a bit put off by her because, you know, it's like – suddenly he's got an older sister who's better than him at everything. Ah, yes. And he's a bit petulant about it. Like, I think unreasonably so. But also, you know, it is difficult when, you know, you've gotten used to a a particular family or social situation and then somebody new comes in and upends it. That is hard. I think we've all had that experience in one way or another. But I think also he is genuinely impressed by her because she is genuinely impressive. She knows what she's doing. She's smart. She's strong. She's talented. She's got skills. And he is impressed by that. But I didn't. I did never envisaged it as being he's like into her in that way. Well, that's it's great. It, it's exciting to have a character that can just appreciate a woman's abilities and there's not needs to be no other hidden agenda. Yeah. That's refreshing. Yeah. Talk to me about this resolution with Aubrey, the robot, knocking out the captain to protect the ship. Oh, yeah. So this is sort of where everybody comes together and (laughs) I really enjoyed putting the Rocky Horror kind of reference in there. Rosh? Eddie? Dr. Black? Captain Fitzroy? Sue? Rosh? Mr. Jones? Captain? Chaplin? I can't think of anything that rhymes with Chaplin. Oh, for God's sake! Oh, that's oh, – my brain knew the reference, but it couldn't put words to – yeah, Rocky Horror, of course. Yeah, yes. yeah, well, everyone's just saying each other's names over and over again. And then, and then Anastasia's like, stop doing that. <laughs> I needed to do something to stop this turning into a musical. But, yeah, it turns out everybody's got an agenda because they've all got something to hide in the cargo hold. So Rosh has been hiding these excess drugs down there because she's hoping to smuggle them to the end – um, end of the journey and, and get them out to people who need them. Aubrey is charged with protecting the secret true energy source of the ship because probably Director Grant realised that, you know, the Night Terrace house is good for other things and might yes. be used for evil, so let's hide it. And, and the captain, it turns out, has just been using it for smuggling, for money purposes. Because it disappears off of the scanner because it can time travel. Yeah, there's this like, weird area on the ship where you can't, you know, the scanners can't see it. But everyone just accepts that that's just normal, that things disappear and appear and that you can't see one bit of the ship. It's like, well, there's nothing we can do about that. It's just a weird steamship in space. <laughs> Um, but he's been, yeah, he's been using it to smuggle all kinds of illegal things. Yeah, he's smuggling politicians because they're outlawed. On this. Yeah, they're illegal. <laughs> just thought that was that was just a nice throwaway gag when Eddie's like trying to guess what Rosh is. Um, a politician, a good one, I mean. Politicians were outlawed 150 years ago. You're like, yeah, I've predicted a whole bunch of stuff that's come true. Maybe I'll just start getting wishful about some of this uh, stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know what other kind of political system they have. <laughs> yeah, Aubrey knocks the captain yeah. out. 
Aubrey's been investigating the captain because they're pretty sure that the captain's up to no good. So and that's um, right. now the captain is being arrested. And just unconscious for a while. <laughs> yeah, just unconscious for a while. And they're just happily, they're just going to be blissfully ignorant and not need to know what's going to become of them. Well, they don't want to know. They yeah. want to know their own future. And Eddie's like, oh, no, more time travels. I hate this. Like, <laughs> Which I, every time myself or somebody else writes a line about that, and it's usually me because I write the most timey-wimey episodes, but... Um, I, I'm just I, like, I love it and I hate it at the same time because I love time travel. It's like my favorite trope of science fiction. And so, yeah, writing, playing this character who just finds it endlessly confusing and hates it is <laughs> it's very fun, but very silly. Well, I would like some recommendations. I want to read something that delves into this sort of theory, this, the timey-wimey logistics. Oh, okay. Reading something. That's a, I don't. Or I can, I can consume it in other ways. Sure. But just something, when you were talking before about, the time and space being adjusted. That blew my mind. Like yeah. something that talks Look, me through you, time. If you really want to melt your brain with time travel stuff, there's an indie film, which I actually don't like that much, but it, <laughs> a lot of people are a big fan of it, called Primer. Very low budget time travel movie with multiple timelines, multiple people crossing over. I actually think it's internally inconsistent. I'm not a big <laughs> fan of their model of time travel, but a lot of people like it. You can find a lot of writing about it on the internet where people have done charts showing you how it all works. That particular movie. That particular yep. movie because it is very, it is it is quite complicated in, <laughs> in some ways. Um, so, yeah, if you want to watch something with really complicated time travel, um, Primer is probably a okay. good start. Okay, well, that's not your sanction recommendation. That's just me needing extracurricular work. Yeah. My recommendation is going to be the chick lit version of this, and that's The Time Traveler's Wife, the book. Oh, I've read it. I cried. It's beautiful. Audrey Niffenegger, gorgeous writing. She's an artist as well, just uses words beautifully. In the movie, Eric Banner's just a time traveler. I, and I did not like the movie. I was, it was, tr- it was tricky. Because, you know, the book, look, I don't want to rubbish your. Recommendation because I read the book, I loved it, and I cried. But then I stopped, thought about it because it is kind of creepy. It's so creepy. Oh my god! Don't yes. I what I like about it is it's beautifully written. But when you take away the writing and you watch the movie, it's extremely creepy because yes. you're like, wait, where's the beautiful writing? It's just an old man going back to visit his child bride. Yes, <laughs> creepy. His, his wife. He goes back and visits. He meets his wife as a young girl and essentially yeah. starts a romance. But he's he randomly travels through time. Yeah, he uh, can't, can't control yeah. it. No. It's just random, which means that his partner has known him since she was a little girl and has always been destined to be with him and it's just it, a bit creepy. But if you want to kind of nudge that uncomfortable feeling in it like if you want if you're the sort of person that's like i might read lolita to see what all the fuss is about if you want this is much nicer than that i'm sure this is like it's it's beautifully written beautifully written and it does play around with zapping in and out of time uh, timelines and um it's mathematically accurate with who is where in what year and i I think it's very cleverly plotted so yeah i'd agree with that, that that was nice as someone who doesn't do a lot of delving into that world to be stepped through it in a romance setting. Yeah, and the time travel aspect of it I, I thought yeah. was brilliantly done. So, yeah, I, I thought that was yeah. great. Book better than movie, rarity. Yeah. I mean, no, book better than movie, as is typical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for most things. Um, I Speaking of that, my other recommendation I was going to have is if you want to read something that's a little bit steampunky and also draws on some of the same inspirations as this episode drew on would be The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen oh. by uh, Alan Moore and... 
read the comic. Now, the first two volumes of the comic are pretty great, although I will preface that by saying that the second volume, which is probably my favorite, does also have some pretty dark stuff in it. Okay. Um, as does the first volume, actually. So, you know, a bit of a content warning for some of the stuff that's in it. You might want to read up about that. But it is great. And it, it, basically, it is a pastiche of every bit of Victorian fiction possible. <laughs> Mostly the sci-fi stuff, but just about every character you can think of in, is in it. And and the premise is that the League of the Title, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, is made up of all these fantastic characters from fiction. And yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, the film, however, is not great. It is the opposite of great. It is terrible. I mean, look, it's got some fun stuff in it, but it is really like taking the source material and then just doing something completely shit with it, if I'm honest. Well, my mission before we reconvene to discuss the third episode is to consume one of these pieces of content. Okay. Because it's very easy to just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that and then there's not, not do a, it. There's not a lot of time travel in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, I'm going to do the time travel ones first, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, but but maybe don't start with Primer. <laughs> that might be too much. But I'll, pro- I'll probably get on to Body Melt from last week's recommendations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Body Melt. I don't think there's any time travel. <laughs> you feel like it's time travel because you'll be watching something from the 90s, but yeah. Thank you, Ben. We'll be back to discuss episode three. When it drops, keep an ear out on BBC Radio 4 Extra, BBC iPlayer or BBC Sounds, and there's all the information you need at nightterrace.com. My other podcast is Neighbours, the Neighbours Recap Podcast. We're at neighbourspod.com. I'm Vaya and we'll join you again for another cuppa on the terrace. Bye. You have been listening to On the Terrace, a Splendid Chaps production. Find more entertainment for your ears at splendorchaps.com.